This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to Becoming Tangata Tiriti, a series of kōrero conversations about te tiriti o Waitangi and what it means to be Tangata Tiriti in Aotearoa, New Zealand. This is a Leadership Lab Roro initiative brought to you in collaboration with Plains FM to amplify marginalised voices for advocacy and provoke system change. We would like to first acknowledge Mana Whenua, the holders of the land in and around the area of Otatahi Christchurch, the Hapu Nai Tua Huliri. We would also like to acknowledge all of the Tangata Whenua, Tau Iwi and Pākehā who have worked tirelessly in this space of decolonisation Reindigenization and Tetiriti education, whose wisdom, scholarship, and work have contributed to our understanding in this conversation. This series is brought to you by Gwyn John and Fee Dehan, two non Maori people living in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We acknowledge that this is the frame of reference from which we speak and discuss this topic. We acknowledge that this topic is so much more than we could hope to explore in this series, and that it may be difficult for some to hear us discuss some of these events in such a quick manner. We acknowledge that we are not able to give this kōrero the time it actually deserves. What we are trying to achieve is to simply begin some conversations and learning journeys that need to be started. Thank you for being here. Kia ora, Gwyn. Kia ora. Atamarie. Yeah, atamarie. Um, good to be back having a chat. Um, here we are, episode four. And episode four is about bringing us from the signing of Te Tiriti o Waitangi um, to now, to present day in 2023. So we are going to take you in a time machine and very briefly, because there is so much that has happened in that time, try to tie together um, some key, I suppose, moments or examples of things that have happened in that time. Um, but knowing we cannot tell the whole story of that time. So we're doing the best we can with the time we have. So, Gwyn, where did we leave it? Yeah, 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 gosh. So we've we've covered the story for, for those that are popping into this conversation. We've covered the story from kind of what was going on um, before, a little bit of what was going on before the first arrival of Europeans here and some of their early contact, um, the Declaration of Independence, so if I could put in, so um, if you don't know about that, best check that one out. Um, then through to the signing of Te Tiriti Waitangi, what was going on before that, what uh, was happening on the at the time that the treaty was signed and, and what Te Tiriti Waitangi actually says. Um and that Te Tiriti Waitangi actually is a really solid document. It reaffirms and um, commits to the recognition of the sovereignty of, of the rangatira, of the hapu of New Zealand, um, as per the Declaration of Independence, the Whakaputanga. Um, and it gives the it gives some limited power to the Crown to do some kawanatanga, um, as in um, exercise some authority over the newcomers that were arriving um, with the equity for for uh, Tangata Whenua to have the same rights as as any of the newcomers that came. So yeah, great document, excellent. Except it didn't get 
um, honoured. So how did we get from there to here is um, what we're going to kind of talk about today. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, really important to, like, to, 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 to reaffirm there is that at this point in time, Māori were in the majority, you Absolutely. know, so... You know, there was they. They had asked for a treaty. They had asked for. Well, they had. They had continued. Not asked is the wrong word. Um, I, my understanding is that they recognised the need for the crown to have some governance over those newcomers. Is that correct? Yeah. Just to confirm. Yeah, so, so, so from the early eighteen hundreds, um, the newcomers that were arriving on these shores, in small numbers initially, but in, in greater numbers as time went on. Um, had no had no kind of um, restraint at all, no authority, no no policeman at the dock to you know make them behave themselves. So there was a lot of really really rough and bad behaviour that was happening, um, and there was no uh, the rangatira um, didn't want to exercise their own law over these newcomers because they recognised that they had a different way of seeing the world, um, but they also were aware that a lot of the the the, the behaviour of the newcomers and particularly those you know traders and sailors and sealers and whalers that were coming in and out uh, after long amounts of time at, at sea, mm. uh, they were breaking laws that, that Māori knew were in action in other parts of the world. So they were, you know, stealing and murdering and fighting and doing the sort of behaviour that they that Māori knew they wouldn't have been able to do in, even in Australia. Mm. Um, so Māori had been requesting that there was some, um, that there be someone here to contain and control mm. um, the behaviour of those newcomers. So that, those requests have been going um, to, to to Sydney and to the mm. uh, to the Crown in England for since the early eighteen hundreds. Mm. And actually, um, th- thank you. No, thanks, Gwing, because I, you know, my, I know my like my role here, um, and you know, is to is to say that the way things are, are forming in my own head because I'm 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 this newbie and I am this immigrant and I am this non nor a new learner and. And so I'd rather say it out loud and and not quite frame it right, and then help you and help you help me then reframe it and and um, better so that I so that I can better understand. So therefore, you know, the person who's listening, who's in that exact same learning space as I am, um, can do so too. And actually, you reminded me that I knew as well that in um, in Hey Fakaputung. Um, Hey, fuck. Oh, my goodness. Could you? Yeah. Hey, fuck. Yeah. You you got it. yeah. I, Thank you. Yeah. Um, that in there, there was a clause or there was an agreement that um, there could be no, no one else could come in and have any governance without the permission um, of a Tangata Whenua. Um, so, yes, there was a reminder to me in there that that had already been uh, documented in the Declaration of Independence. So the treaty was needed it was actually because of that agreement or because of that statement, the treaty was needed so that the Crown could have that governance over the new arrival and the new arrivals. Um, OK, great. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Yeah. And remembering as well, um, we had the New Zealand company who mm-hmm. in 1839 had started se- sending boatloads of settlers to New Zealand. So. Um, if so, you're, and you're absolutely right. The crown, the British crown, needed to ask permission of the rangatira to be able to exercise any authority over the, both those mm. um, who had already arrived here and Edward Gibbon Wakefield and crew, um, and all of the settlers that were potentially going to arrive yeah. um, from that time forward. So yes, mm. you're absolutely right. So, as we said, um, so we've established again that the 
I suppose, the reasons why the Treaty Waititiriti or Waitangi came about. We've confirmed there as well that um, we, we've talked about the, the differences between the uh, Reo Māori text that the majority signed and that um, would have been discussed. Um, and But we've also discussed uh, uh, an English text as well, um, which has different language or wording in it um, around ceding sovereignty. Um, and uh, uh, and we've also established as well that Māori were in the majority at that time. So we have Te Te Rite O Waitangi. Where, what's happened next? What are some of the key things? Yeah, where would you go next? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, as you said, um, remembering that it was Te Tiriti Waitangi in Te Reo Māori that was signed on the day, there wasn't an English text sitting on the table mm-hmm. beside it. It was just Te Tiriti Waitangi, and the conversations were in Te Reo about Te Tiriti Waitangi. So um, that actually uh, leads to kind of one of the first significant actions that were taken by the Crown um, that were, was a breach of Te Tiriti, which was that... Um, by May 1840, um, Hobson, for um, uh, I'm not sure if we actually know the reasons, but Hobson decided to um, decided to write two proclamations in May 1840. Um, one of the proclamations was that the British Crown had sovereignty over the Northern Islands because the Rangatira had ceded sovereignty. And his second proclamation was that the British Crown had sovereignty over the South Island by virtue of discovery. Hmm. So if we think back to the doctrine of discovery, the hmm. idea that a, a, a nation couldn't be sovereign unless a Christian sovereign actually was the sovereign. Um, so, so here's Hobson in 1840 in May, having begun the process of sending um, Te Tiriti around the country to gather more signatures, declares that the British Crown have sovereignty over the South Islands because of discovery. Mm. So once those proclamations um, come forwards, yeah, I know, that's like, that slide I like, what? Discovery? Yeah, huh? if you could, listener, if you could see my face now, I'm very good at like raising one eye side eye going on. Like, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so once those those proclamations came out and those proclamations went went back to to um, to England, um, and they began to be sort of posted around the country, then they became, I guess, the the default position that certainly those settlers that became that came from that time on began that that was what they understood to be the case. Um, because the difference, significant difference between uh, those settlers that ha- were were here in Aotearoa prior to the signing of Te Tiriti is that they pretty much all spoke Te Reo Māori. Mm. So they had a, a pretty solid understanding because that was the language of trade, it was the language of survival, basically. Um, whereas once those settlers started arriving beyond 1840, they may not necessarily have engaged to the same degree with the with the um, Tangata Whenua population. Yeah. So may not have actually being able to read the text in Te, Tiriti, in te Reo Māori. Um, although uh, it was it was the text in Te Reo Māori that was published and gazetted in England um, with a translation in English being present, but that was the, it was the Māori text that was actually published as the agreement that was made. But many of those settlers that came later um, didn't know how to speak Te Reo Māori or read Te Reo Māori, so may not have known the difference, the significance of 
of the different translations. Right. So so the impact then of Hobson making those proclamations to settlers who would have are very likely to have little or no long knowledge of uh, Te Reo Māori would mean they're going to believe what he's telling them. Yeah. So, you know, it's basically your first kind of propaganda in a way, yeah. isn't it? You know, it's like, yeah. oh, well, you know, it's the first uh, first uh, media soundbite or um, political football, as we'd say today. Oh, well, oh, he must be telling the truth. So, yeah, we'll believe him. Yeah. yeah. And and it fitted in with that that colonial mindset mm. of of the, the superiority of the British culture um and that you know what had been happening around the globe um for, for the previous couple of hundred years um of colonizing by by those Western European countries. So uh, it would have been expected, I guess, and and assumed that that sovereignty um, because of that sense of hierarchy, because of that sense of supremacy, that that was a part of the European or Western European mindset at that time. Yeah, but that's certainly the, the you know one of the very first um, breaches of Tetiriti because that was not what was agreed. Um, sovereignty was not ceded by Māori. Uh, it was Kawanatanga that was was given permission to be exercised in relationship with with Whenua. So there's our first, yeah, our first breach. Mm. Yeah. What next? What next? Yeah. So so then we have following that, um, we have just a series of of um, breaches of Tetiriti, and particularly uh, a, a massive change that happened in the first twenty years was the population really shifted. So within those first 20 years, um, population went from Māori being a significant majority to um, by, by 1860, um, there's a range of different kind of numbers uh, attached to population, but uh, the general understanding is that Māori and non-Māori populations were about the same. So within 20 years, within two decades, that had gone, that had shifted significantly. And, and you know, I think, um, I don't. I don't know that anyone would have uh, foreseen that massive shift in demographics. Twenty years. Twenty wow. years. So, and just let's just for um, uh, just for the sake of it here, remind us just numerically what that looked like. So we remember what were our numbers again around the time of Tetiriti being signed. So around eighteen forty. Remind me of what the numbers were. Yeah. So about and at eighteen forty, and there's there's uh, there's quite hmm. a kind of you know, contested about, I mean, we can't even get a census right now, can we? So getting numbers back then was pretty difficult. But general understanding is about 150,000 um, tangata and about 2,000 newcomers at, in 1840. Uh, that shifted significantly to about 80,000 of each um, in 1860. Whoa. So the numbers do vary between sort of 80 and 100. Um, but yeah, that was the general understanding is that the, the numbers had pretty much evened out. Um, and mm. that's hugely significant. And and what happened though, that the numbers evened out? Um, yeah. You know, what what caused that, um, that, that shift? One of the biggest things that caused that shift was this idea that New Zealand had a huge amount of what um, the English called wasteland. So within the, the, the psyche of, of um, the United Kingdom at that stage, 
land was seen as, um, you know, the means to wealth. So land in its own right didn't necessarily, didn't, it wasn't seen to have any value unless you did something with it. So you graze something on it, you grow something on it, you fence it off, you do something with it to, um, to give it value. So there was this idea um, that there was a huge amount of wastelands present in Aotearoa. So land that hadn't been cultivated or wasn't mm. being raised for things. So so this idea really appealed to the settler population because they didn't have access for the most part. Um, most people in Britain by that stage, if you weren't born into the landed gentry, you had very little chance of getting access to land. So this idea that you could go across the other side of the world and get land was a huge draw card. And that was how it was advertised. Um, by the New Zealand company was this idea that you could you could go get land and and particularly you know, people like my own ancestors who arrived in 1840 who were agricultural labourers so they worked somebody else's land so the idea that they could come across the other to the other side of the world and get access to land um, was worth the you know three or four months on the ship um, and sure, sure enough they they got free passage over here and they got given a, a piece of land for a very very low cost mm. um, the fact that it hadn't actually been um, given, they hadn't been given permission to live there by the time of Fennel, uh, kind of, they, didn't, they, weren't, they weren't initially aware of that. Mm. Uh, but that was a big, huge part of that was the, this desire for land. Um, so, and, and that was one of the key tools that was used um, very early on was to access land at very, very low costs um, through a, 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 a number of, there were actually land purchasers who were given the job of going around the country to purchase land from um, from Tangtafenua. And so they acquired huge amounts of land by a range of different, often quite dubious means, mm. um, whether that was uh, shifting boundaries or just taking land that hadn't been included in arrangements. Um, but those that was one of the first things that happened was the acquisition of large tracts of land, particularly in the South Island, um, by crown, crown purchasers. And that gave the Crown the ability to on-sell pockets of land at a huge, huge profit, mm. hence giving the, the, the Crown coffers a massive boost. So those early land purchases or acquisitions um, allowed – the, the, the local settler government to build its coffers and it allowed local settlers to build their coffers mm. at the expense of taking land from, from Māori. Because I think you, we had talked about in, the, in, our, in one of our last chats that there had been some um, conditions about buying land um, in Te Tiriti, is that correct? And, yes. and So were some of these purchases in... Um, not in line with those. Yeah, so so one of the so Article Two of Te Tiriti um, allowed for the Crown to have preemption, so first rights to buy land. Uh, what the Crown actually did was uh, at at various different times they did or didn't um, uh, enforce that for starters. So it was it was it was um, touted as a way of protecting. Tangtafenua from people like Edward Gibbon Wakefield, who had, as we talked about earlier, who had so on sold land to settlers before even making yeah. any purchases of mm, land from, mm. from Māori. So the idea was that it was going to protect Māori from sort of random people going around trying to purchase land. Um, but it also uh, what the Crown ended up doing was at various different times um, 
not allowing anybody else to purchase any land, which meant that they were able to set the, the price because they were the only ones who were involved in any um, acquisitions of land. Mm. So they could set the price at a really, really low amount and then on sell to settlers at a really high amount. Um, so that, that, and they, I mean, they, they did and didn't enforce that at various different times. Mm. Um, that was one of the, the conversations that happened on the day of the signing of Tatiti was um, there was a huge concern about the amount of land that had been taken by the settlers that were already here. And Tangata Whenua um, requested that the Crown investigate any any land purchases that had happened prior to 1840 um, because they were really concerned that that those purchases were not correct and that there were people uh, who had acquired land or had assumed the right to ownership of land that was not allowed or agreed upon by Tangata Whenua. Um, but that that process of um, acquiring huge amounts of land really allowed um, massive shift in power um, even before uh, 1860. So in 1852, um, the first uh, the the Constitution Act, the New Zealand Constitution Act, um, came about, um, and that literally transferred the power from the the Crown in England to the settler population here in Aotearoa. Um, and, and from that point on, building those government, the settler government coffers was a real priority because that allowed them to then start to put in place various different mechanisms of government, such as a court, a jailhouse, a policeman, all of those things. You can't do those without money to pay for it. Mm. So those early land acquisitions really contributed to the building of the, the mechanisms of the settler government. Right. So so the Crown stepping out is is really, they were the partner in Te Tiriti. Right. Um, yeah. uh, so then by stepping out, they've technically broken the treaty because they're they've just you know they've got no okay well actually we don't we're not we're not going to do that governance thing anymore actually you know they can look after themselves yeah, yeah. and ironic because who did the crown promise to be protecting Spinner mm. from yeah the settlers the, the, the settlers yeah, right the settlers. yeah so so the crown promises to set to protect Tang Tefinua from settlers so the process of handing the power of governance to the settlers was essentially giving the settlers the power to protect Māori from themselves. Right, okay. So, yes, the Crown stepped out of that picture um, and that promise of protection from the behaviour of the settlers, mm. which was the problem from the start. Which is, um, yeah, which was the request and, and which was the request and um, yeah. one of the main, one of the main reasons for Te 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 O Waitangi. Um, yeah. Yeah, so we've got, a, you know, a couple of breaches there already, you know, the proclamations around ceding sovereignty um, to people who didn't understand Te Reo Māori, so they would just be, believe what they've been told. There's the Crown stepping out of the relationship, uh, which is a breach of Te Tiritsi because they're the partner and they had promised in the treaty to protect Tangata Whenua, so from the, the settlers, so... By giving that power to the settlers, then yeah, you're you know yeah, that's okay. I'm still winding my brain around <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, it's a bit confusing. Yeah, so yeah I'm but I get it. From that dangerous thing. Yeah. Um. So now I'm going to give the dangerous thing the power. The power. To protect you from itself. From, from itself. So how <laughs> yes. how does that work? I think there's. So I think I'm just thinking there. There's a little bit of a conflict of interest 
Um, a little bit. Just, just Tiny. a wee one. So, and as you said there, you know, the, this these new, the, this new settler government, I suppose, um, needed to build their coffers, needed to, you know, um, needed to build their finances so that then they could set up the services that they need that the, the crown right. was no longer going to provide. Um, right. So, which enabled this cycle, you know, that I'm starting right. to see emerge here because as they gained more money, they gained more power. And as there was no one else to protect Tangans of Fenua, um from this behaviour, then, and the numbers were dwindling. So the increase of settlers because of the attraction um, from land and from really maybe not great situations themselves. But then I would, I would, um, you know, am I right in saying that the decrease then in Maori numbers, one of the main things would have been introduced diseases. Is that correct? Yeah, that had a massive, massive impact um, on Māori populations. Um, and that's one of the, the little myths, well, significant myths that um, that we hear a, a bit is that, you know, this idea that Māori were, were fighting each other um, and, and and that that was why they needed te tiriti and that that was why the population was decreasing, but that wasn't the case. Mm. We did have a period of time where there were what we call the musket wars, mm. but by the by the early 30s, um, Māori had agreed together that they would no longer do that. So that wasn't the problem. There was no um, no need for any protection from Māori against each other by that stage. But, yeah, absolutely, the new diseases and the increased population meant that more Māori were, were contacting um, the newcomers and those were, were exposed to those new diseases, whereas earlier on, many parts of the country, that there was no contact with the newcomers, so mm. uh, that those diseases had been contained somewhat. Uh, so that was that was huge. It was really huge. Yeah. So, so we've gotten to this point in 1860 where the numbers now are almost on par. Yeah. Um, yeah. That there's a settler that that this, there's a settler government uh, rather than the crown taking responsibility for governance at, as had been agreed, and that settler government gaining more power and authority and money, and with that. Gaining more power and authority, and money yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, and, and and three guesses as to who was who was able to participate in the new settler government. Settlers, <laughs> male settlers yeah. over the age of twenty-one who had individual land title. Right. So again, bringing because because what another thing that the Constitution Act did was was transferred essentially um, law from England that was applicable here into into this new constitutional. Maker, mm. so the only people who were able to to participate in that new settler government were individual males over the age of uh, males over the age of twenty one who had individual land title. So at this point, Māori land was still uh, was still ha- held in in customary collective um, relationship. The idea of individual land title was a foreign concept to to Tangtafenua, so Māori weren't able to participate in this government. So breach breach of the treaty there, to correct me if I'm Excellent. wrong, but breach of the treaty there in that um one article of the treaty states that whatever um whatever Kawanatana, whatever the crown or settlers um create, Māori can have access to as well. Is that yeah. is that a breach there? Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. I mean, technically you could say that, well, any Māori, if they were a male over the age of 21 and had individual land t- title, could participate technically. But when when you know that that's not the way that land title exists, mm. then that's not a particularly equitable approach. 
Um, so Māori didn't have access to to be a part of that. And in actual fact, through a, a range of different mechanisms by the mid-60s, there were significant numbers of Māori who who were male over 21 and had individual land title. So that's when, at that point in 1867, they introduced a law to limit the number of Māori politicians that could be a part of government to four. So in 1867, we had the Māori, um, the Māori, the four Māori seats that were set up. Mm. And they were set up um, because in certain areas, there were more Māori who had access to voting and participation than there were settler population. So that limited the number of Māori who could participate. If you looked at a population kind of distribution of, of allocation of seats, Māori should have had sort of 14, 15 seats at that mm. stage. So when we hear about Māori seats, um, which have extended now, there, there are seven now, um, but when you think about, um, you know, we often hear about the privilege of the Māori seats. They weren't brought in to privilege Māori. They were brought in to limit Māori's ability to participate mm. in that settler government. It was a, we'll give you something, we'll give you a seat at the table, but we're only going to give you this many. And when it comes to democracy then, so let's, you know, if we're talking about democracy, then, and if you're always in the minority, you are all, you are never going to be the winner in democracy. Yeah. Right. Yes. But Māori weren't, weren't at that point in the minority. Mm. They were still a significant part of the population. Yeah. So it wasn't giving Māori seats. It was actually taking away mm. the equitable opportunity to participate. Okay. So so this was limiting the number of seats that Māori were able to participate with. So um, the, the numbers of, I can't remember exactly how many um, uh, how many MPs there were at that time. If I recall, it's around 90 Um 80 or 90, but um, it certainly wasn't providing for an equitable representation of, of populations no. even. So it wasn't democratic in any way, shape no. or form. It was significantly limiting the um, Māori ability to, to participate in that process. Right. Wow. So as a consequence of this um, limiting of, of four seats, um, at any point that Māori were trying to introduce anything into the parliament or the government system to support Māori or to challenge breaches of tetiriti, they simply couldn't get the votes. So mm. the Pākehā politicians would simply leave or vote against anything that Māori uh, politicians brought to the to the government. So we've gotten to this point now where there's where there's a system the, the system, the settler system um, that yeah. has been built and that has been created has now the power and the money and the um, the ability now to, uh, to has the ability to limit uh, Maori participation and and knowing at this point really knowing pretty well that you know there are significant differences in how um, te Maori systems of society and how this new settler system works it's like well no this you know it's making making it really hard for maori to be able to participate in this settler system is yeah. is that right absolutely mm-hmm. yeah yeah so 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 systematically excluding maori from from processes once um, maori had should have been given um given equitable access as promised so that's the article 3 um, that's just a, a complete breach of that um, mm. by not allowing for for Māori to participate. So while all of this is happening um, in in terms 
of setting up the new government structures, um, significant, pretty much the whole of the South Island had been acquired by the Crown by um, by sort of the, the early 1850s. Um, and Māori up and down the country had, by the 1850s, early 1850s, had actually said no more. We don't want any more land to be going into the hands of Pākehā. Um, so um, what was happening at that stage is that Māori still had pretty much about 80% of the, the the North Island was still in Māori hands. And during those first, um, especially the, the 40s and 50s, 1840s and 50s, Māori were absolutely thriving. So from, as we talked about earlier on, as soon as that new, as soon as Māori got their hands on that new technology, that new knowledge, that new information, um, new things to grow, new animals to, 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 to breed and, and, you know, importing dairy, mm. herds, as we heard. So Māori society was really flourishing. So Māori prosperity, particularly in the 1850s, was absolutely thriving. Mm. So many, many hapu had set up um, you know, flour mills and they were growing corn and grazing um, sheep and cattle and horses and pigs. And so so Māori society was really, really flourishing. And Māori were, were really the ones that were supporting all of the settler population in terms of, of food, in terms of produce. Mm. So it was Māori that were supplying the markets. It was Māori crops and growers that were um, providing for, for the settler population. And that was one of the things that caused massive consternation to the settler population, particularly in the North Island, because Māori in, in, in those really fertile areas, Taranaki, Waikato, um, Tauranga Moana, mm. um, Hawke's Bay, all of those really fertile areas, um, Māori hapu had hapu-based businesses that were really thriving. And the settlers couldn't gain access to the land and that that market economy mm. that Māori were absolutely dominating. Yeah, yeah. And because it was done at hapu base, everyone contributed, mm. everyone benefited, which was a different system than that capitalist system that the Pākehā, um, that was, you know, had already been highly developed in, in Britain where mm. you know, one person owned the, the, the capital, others worked for them. Yeah. Um, so that system is a little bit um, more, more complex to implement, whereas the hapu approach was just absolutely um, thriving during the 1850s. So it's not uh, to but, say, you know, it's not to say, yes, you know, there were some elements there where Māori benefited totally from um, from from the technology and crops. And so they took the best of what was coming and, and paired and brought it and paired it with how they operated as hapu and, and yeah. developed these these businesses. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you hear offhand comments there sometimes. Oh, you know, all in all, you know, colonialism or, you know, um, colonisation was, was good for Māori. It was good, you know. Yeah, so let's 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 pick out there is an example there that is absolutely but it it wasn't that, you know, it came and gave them something and, and they had they you know, they had nothing. they took it, they took some of this new knowledge, new new technology and paired it with um and brought it together with some of what they amazing stuff they already had. So yeah, that's one great example of, of yeah. how they benefited and yet they were thriving. Yeah. Yes, um and, and but, I think you know that People often say, you know, colonization was good for Māori because they got all this technology. Colonization didn't bring the technology. The technology was present. Māori gained access to it and, and adopted it and were absolutely thriving. Mm. So uh, contact with, with, you know, this new technology that Europe brought was great for Māori, absolutely. Mm. Um, and, and as it was implemented within a respectful, mutually beneficial relationship, 
it worked fine. Yeah. But colonization is not about a respectful, mutually beneficial relationship. Colonization is about taking control, taking resources, and taking them by really violent and oppressive means. Mm. And so we've heard about the kind of more um, uh, passive aggressive means by, in terms of t- setting up a, a government, funding that government through um, dubious land purchases or land mm. acquisitions. Um, and and what happened um, increasingly in the North Island from particularly from the the late fifties through to the sixties was um, because of the pressure that the settler population was putting on the government and that the government had enough money, they then simply attacked Māori communities. So this is the period of time that we talk about as the New Zealand land wars, okay. where um, government troops literally went into Māori communities with heavy, heavy military and simply destroyed those communities. So we have a a series of um, attacks by militia um, and and as the government um, coffers got bigger, the the number of militia got more Mm. um, and the level of attack got more extreme. So um, hundreds of of Māori were killed and displaced through this period of time that we call the the New Zealand Land Wars. So they they started in the as early as as 1845 up north, um, but they really uh, they were really activated um, from the late 1850s mm. um, in Taranaki area and and um, around those really fertile areas of the North Island um, and really. Uh, really kind of culminated in, in a mass attack on the Waikato Tainua area in 1863. So at that point, we know that there were about 18,000 militia. So the, the largest standing militia of the British crown um, anywhere at that point on, on the globe. And they imported about 11,000 militia to fight Māori at that stage. So um, this was a huge attack on Tangata Whenua, mm. um, because of the simple reason that, that by that stage, um, Māori were, were using a range of different mechanisms to say no more land will be, will be um, mm. acquired by the Crown. So the Kingitanga movement was particularly strong in this, in this um, area, uh, where you know, if you think about you know, the, the, the monarch in, in Britain um, and the king at that point, so that was one of the mechanisms that Māori used to attempt to try and get the Crown to engage in a conversation and a mutually beneficial, mutually respectful conversation based on the agreement of Te Tiriti was that Māori um, formed together to elect a, a king and the Kingitanga movement, whereby the king was was um, trying to address uh, rangatira to rangatira, if you like. Mm, mm, so try to England. mirror the crown system. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so yeah. it's they not working. Yeah. So they were excluded from the settler government system. So, right, okay, we made an agreement with the Crown. Let's have that conversation. Um, and, a, and a big part of what the Kingitanga movement was saying at that stage was no more land, no mm. more land to be sold. So in response to that, the settler government um, simply attacked Mm. Uh, attacked areas and and used legislation as well. So we have some significant legislation that came through at that point uh, in terms of um, Māori were able to be arrested if they were suspected of rebellion. Um, in, the, in Taranaki, if they were just suspected of doing anything that might mm. um, get in the way of, of the Crown's actions, uh, they could be arrested and imprisoned without trial, so suspending of habeas corpus. And anyone who was suspected of being in rebellion to the Crown, their land could just be confiscated. So that combination of legislation 
and and the just sheer numbers of mm. armed militia. Um, and the guns were, you know, wheeled down the Great South Road. They were taken down the, the Waikato River um, to literally attack uh, Māori community. And and these this is the these are the times where you know women and children and older older people in churches the doors were locked the church set on fire, mm. um, women and children in in villages just simply being shot and attacked as they're trying to flee, yeah. and at that point all of that um, hugely prosperous uh, horticulture and agriculture was also destroyed. So the the, the troops went and killed people and just destroyed crops, burnt crops destroyed flour mills, um, destroyed villages. Mm. So a, a massive, massive impact in, just in terms of people fleeing for their lives, mm. but also um, all of that uh, infrastructure just destroyed. Mm. Um, so even if they were able to return to their, their home areas at some point later on, mm. um, everything was just was annihilated. Decimated. Decimated. And you talk about the, you know, so we've 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 so many different methods now or modes of breaching the treaty from passive aggressive um propaganda to laws to um limiting of maori seats um around government to and now to you know to yeah to to attack you know to to violence um you just as you were speaking there it just reminded me of some of the things i've read about of, that have happened in ireland um you know a similar time um you know, different experiences, but similar experiences as well. And, you know, so the, the colonizer, we would say, um, had used some similar techniques um, in other countries before. So this wasn't the first rodeo, right? And Absolutely. as you said, uh, to that the, what you talked about there, the first, the biggest armed, um, the biggest armed branch of the, um, uh, of the militia in the globe at that time was here in Aotearoa in New Zealand yeah. to... Um, yeah, to 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 pursue to to yeah, to really go to town, really, and pursue all of that land. And wow, yeah, and you're right. Many of those troops had been redeployed from other um, other places around the globe where the colonizing actions of of war and violence had been mm. um, being being implemented yeah. for, for many years. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And some of those legislations were simply plucked from yeah. various different other colonial conflicts around the world. Yeah, I read, I think I've mentioned that to you before, um, Robert Constantine and Robert and Joanna Constantine's yeah. book. And and in that book, Healing Our History, they speak about, they you know, they're centred on Aotearoa and New Zealand, but they speak about um, similarities um, mm. to other countries. This, um, Australia, um, Ireland, um, Canada. Um, you know, to, to to mention but a few. So really, really interesting that, you know, you you that these some of these processes had been learned um and refined in other places. Um so we've gotten to this point now where we have the New Zealand we have the land wars. Um yeah. Yeah, yeah what are the where you know, yeah, what's next? Where what are the impacts uh, you know where are we at if we think about it in our time machine. What, what would you like to? What, what would you speak to next? Yeah. So in our time machine, where yeah, so that that those, um, the, especially the last few years of the fifties and the early sixties was that time of 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 land wars. And just as an aside, um, there is a series done by Radio New Zealand that's a video podcast series 
um, hosted by Mihingara New Forbes, and she goes around the country to the various different kind of main sites of that violence mm. um, and tells the stories about that, uh, about what happened in each of those sites. So really encourage people to, to look into that. Um, and again, you know, this is part of why we are now teaching a history in schools is, is actually as a result of a group of uh, students from Otorohonga High School who, once they learnt about the New Zealand wars, were absolutely um, disgusted that they weren't taught that at school. So this was, this was part of the action that was taken to try and get our history taught at school because um, many of us grew up with this idea that, you know, we have the best race relations in the world and colonisation happened here better than in other places in the world. And, you know, it was some kind of benign conversation that happened that everyone agreed on. But but we have um, we have really violent... Um, we have a very really violent history of colonization here, so um, it's really important that we all understand mm. that. Um, yeah. Where does and and I didn't know if we were going to talk about it or not, but you know it is quite significant because I think it speaks to um, the kind of peaceful nature of protest that Maori have engaged in is Parahaka. Does that yeah. fit in here from a timing perspective? Um, yeah. 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 Yeah, so um, Parihaka um, began to emerge through the, at this time as well um, as a result of many people being displaced. Many tangata whenua were displaced, they were run off their lands, they were attacked. So uh, the Parihaka village um, in Taranaki was, was where many of them went as a safe haven. So that grew and grew over those decades from um, the mid-60s through to, uh, it's still, it's still a, a community now, um, but that became a haven for for people, and um, under a philosophy of of nonviolence, and you see that all the way through Māori actions from the very very start, there's a philosophy of nonviolence um, against the colonizer, despite the violence that the colonizer has um, has done to Māori. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, Māori defended their land um, and very effectively defended um, when they were attacked by the militia. Um, but by and large, there there aren't um, you know Maori responded, um, but but most for the most part, um, the actions were all um, non-violent actions, mm-hmm. and Parihaka was a was a base for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but but after the in terms of you know the ongoing story of colonization, once the um, you know the land wars uh, they were just so devastating for Maori. Um, and they were Māori was so outgunned in terms of that. Even in the Waikato, um, where those eighteen thousand um, militia attacked the Waikato, there's around about four thousand Māori who were uh, defending those lands. Um, so hugely outnumbered. Um, and and following on from that, uh, probably one of the most efficient. Um, uh, uh, Things that to, to take away Māori land, um, tools to, to remove land from Māori was actually the, the Native Land Court. Mm. So in 1865, there was a, um, a series of Native Land Acts that set up the Māori, the Native Land Court. Um, and that process was incredibly uh, effective at, at taking land from the hands of Māori and putting it into the hands of settlers through the power of legislation. So uh, it's a settler could in, could initiate a process if they saw a piece of land that they saw that they decided was wasteland. Mm. They could put an application through the court mm. to um, claim individual title of that land. 
then that had to be defended in court by anyone who had any interest in that land. So the notifications were put up in, in settler, settler communities. They may or may not have been seen by the mm. Māori um, owners of that land. If they didn't turn up to court, they lost automatically lost the, any rights to that land. Um, they went straight to the settler. Mm. Um, they had to be surveyed at the cost of the owner. So even if um, Māori went through the court process and were recognised as having um, relationship to that land, um, they may... Ended, have ended up um, having to hand over title uh, because of the survey costs or because of the costs of um, spending weeks, if not months, in townships in order to be present for the court hearing um, and, and having to pay for food and accommodation in those areas. Mm. Uh, and, and once uh, title was um, recognised by the, the land court, um, they couldn't cope with the idea that there was uh, there were many many um, people who had relationship with that land. So Māori were were forced to actually put ten no more than ten names on titles. So that and that whole process, um, huge amount, huge numbers of of Māori still are, are um, having to deal with this disenfranchisement and this um, alienation from land because if only 10 names got put on mm. that title, mm. um, there were obviously multiple names that didn't get put on that title. Mm. And, you know, siblings, one sibling had the name put on the title, the other didn't. So three generations later, the ancestors of the same, of, of, of siblings, um, one side one side of the, of the family gets access to land, the other doesn't mm. because mm. of that process. So um, hugely impactful. So uh, around about um, 11 million hectares, uh, acres, sorry, was um, was taken from Māori during that process of the the, the land court uh, from the 1860s, mid 1860s through to mm. to the end of um, the 1800s. Mm. So that was that was probably one of the most efficient means to remove. Mm. Uh, Māori title and it was intended to do that and there are a number of quotes that you can find really easily um, of Parker MPs who described the efficiency and the purpose of the land court mm. being to remove Māori title from, from land. They weren't hiding the fact really you know, I at really this point, it was like pretty yeah. overt. Yeah. Um, so, yes, you know, really what we've talked a, a bit, talked about to now. So, you know, if we think about these tools of the of the coloniser, you know, yeah. we've talked about everything from, you know, the use of laws, the use of propaganda and political, just political um, speeches to... Yeah. Um, to, to limiting the authority or the ability for Maori to be represented around this at this with this settler government, um, and then and onto militia. So, um, a whole pile of tools that I suppose that we've talked about there already, and you know, knowing that there's so much more, you know, has happened is happening throughout that time and continues to. I guess I, I'm I'm conscious that we we kind of need to to move forward and um you know time wise and and think about you know other tools I guess that that emerged and that brought us up to today and I mean some of the ones I I I think of are you know in the 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 punishment for speaking language for speaking your language um yeah. which you know has has continued to be intergenerational um the the again propaganda i suppose or the push to assimilate 
because if you don't assimilate, you won't succeed. And um, and part of that is related to language as well, is that, you know, parents or, or grandparents decide, OK, well, actually, kids, we're not going to speak this language anymore. Um, because it's your, I need to protect you and I need you to be able to um, function in this society. Um, and the same around, you know, how you dress or how you behave. So assimilate to be like yeah. the settler yeah. and the coloniser so that you can fit in and be OK. Um, and, and on one hand, someone might go, well, well, if they're doing that, sure, you know, means they're fine. But actually it's forced it's forced because if you want your children your and your your or your grandchildren to be safe and you've experienced the danger and unsafeness um they will just listen to you they will assimilate and and fit in but not know until much later on the damage um, and the why behind that now i know i've sco- scooted quite a bit forward so um just want to acknowledge that, but wanted to start to pick out some of those different mm. tools of oppression and colonization. Yeah, yeah, I think that's. Um, um, we probably don't have time to go into that today, but um, I think I think it's really important to to understand the impact of of assimilation and that it was um, it was as early as 1841 um, We we see that in the uh, intention of the coloniser in terms of the assimilation and how important it is to as speedily as possible assimilate the Māori people into the European ways of doing things. Mm. And that certainly came to the fore uh, later on through the education system. So Mm. um, progressively, um, the education laws and the education policies um, removed the language from from people as you mentioned, so so you know we have generations of young people who spoke to their Māori at home, went to school and got beaten. So as you said, yeah, trying to protect their children um, from that same experience by making sure that they were able to speak English and participate in, in the European world. Mm. Um, but but the there's a there's a quote um, out of a, a reader that is given to ten year olds um, about the health of a Māori, and it says. The main object of this book is to impress upon the minds of the rising generation of Māori truths that are of the highest importance to their race, which must be learned to respect if they are to escape extermination. So this is a a preface in a book um, that was given to 10-year-olds to take home. So it shows really clearly uh, the the direction of the education system to to give young Māori, this is the late 1880s, um, to give Māori this idea that if they were going to survive, they needed to become like Pākehā. They needed to be like the Europeans, and they had to make a choice. So one of the one of the quotes in this book um, says, uh, is he to live as Māori or as European? If he is to do well, he must make his choice between these two ways of life. So those sorts of things that were, were told to this generation of Māori through the late 1800s and early 1900s, um, being told that has a massive impact on your sense of self, right? And mm. the language, and we talked about that, you know, the language being a window into a whole world, you lose that language, you use, lose the ability to articulate all of the things that are important in that world. And then you mm. get told that if you don't do that, you're going to be exterminated. It's fear, so it's you know, fear, mass- mongering, and to children. Like, to children. To this children. is a 10-year-old, well. yeah. 
10 year old reader. Mm. Yeah. So, so that power of assimilation, you know, um, it's often kind of talked about as, as not as bad as violence, mm. but that level of um, psychological violence that tells you you are not okay, that if you want to survive, you must stop being Māori, you must be Pākehā, um, has had a massive, massive impact on on. Um, the minds and hearts of of Tangsfinoa. We know psychological safety, you know, is can be just as damaging as as um, physical um, physical uh, safety. Um, I think uh, un- I think we we have to unfortunately wrap up this quarter yeah. here, but um, I just think we've given a small glimpse into. Um, some of the tools of the colonizers, of the colonizer, and the impact that it has had, um, the impact that it, some of the impact that it has had. God, we, we couldn't even touch on all of the impact it has had. I couldn't even speak for it. It's not my place. Um, so I think, yeah, we're, we're just at a spot where we need to pause for now and we're going to continue this korero um, next time where we start to talk about what is what does that look like? What does this look like now? What does the impacts of Te Tiriti O Waitangi not being um, honoured look like now? And what does it mean to become Tangan Te Tiriti? Um, and what are the possibilities and hope for the future? Um, because I think we have to head that way. Yeah, we have to head it's, towards hope. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, Gwyn, thanks for your time. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Becoming Tangatetsuritsi. This is one of a series of six conversations. Podcasts of the series will be available on the Plains FM website, Spotify and Apple. If you have any questions or feedback or you have ideas for other topics that we should explore, you can contact us via Plains FM or Spotify. Please share with your networks so that we can continue to amplify marginalised voices for advocacy, provoke system change and help us all be more inclusive and understanding of others' experiences. Thank you Leadership Lab and Plains FM for supporting this project.